0: With that is our prayer this morning, that God would open our eyes, our, our ears, our minds to hear what God has to say to us. We open the Scriptures to John chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 11 verses from that passage. What we hope to do in these next weeks leading up to uh, Good Friday and Easter is to trace through the Gospel of John the life of Jesus. We want to build a kind of biography of Jesus' life, not just what he did, but how he interacted with people, how he cared for people. This evening, for example, we'll look at Jesus in chapter 4, at the woman at the well, and how he persisted in loving her into the kingdom of God. So this morning, we're going to begin with the story of the wedding feast at Cana, and we'll read these words beginning at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out the mother of jesus said to her to him they have no wine and jesus said to her woman what does this have to do with me my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you now there were six stone water jars there for the jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. One of the things that makes John's gospel different from the other three, called the synoptic gospels, is that he wants to see the life of Jesus differently than they do. They're interested in kind of a chronological order of Jesus' ministry, but John wants to look at his life thematically. And so, this theme that we begin with this morning, with the sign of the wedding feast at Cana, is one of seven signs that John records in his book, seven signs that he points to. So, in the next weeks leading up to Good Friday, we're going to look at each of those seven signs, and we'll have to do some of them in the evenings, but all of those sevens will point to the point of which Jesus now is going to become the Savior of the world, the true Messiah. Now, notice the words of verse 11 in our reading. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. We need to understand what John means by that term sign. We understand signs. We, we know what signs are good for. When you're driving down the road into Falmouth, you, you come across the sign that talks about a certain restaurant, Duane's, or the Ebel's store. Now, you know that you don't stop alongside of the road and pull off to the side and get out of the car and go up to the sign of that says Dwayne's Restaurant expecting to find food there. <laughs> that's just not logical. You don't go to the evil sign and expect to find some hardware there. No, the signs always point to something that they're advertising. And so that's the way it is with the signs that... John is actually using here in these texts as well. We understand how that sign works, but oftentimes when we read through the signs in the Bible, we read them casually. We read them thinking, well, how did Jesus do that? How did he change water into wine? And we spend all of our time trying to diagnose the miracle itself. Or we just pass it over as though, well, that's just one of the miracles but each one of the miracles that John points to as a sign must always point forward to something of a greater value something that has m- meaning that is deeper and more intense than what we may have first thought so what we're looking at this morning is the question of what does this sign that first sign that John points to what does it show us about Jesus and his ministry And our life as well. John's explanation of signs comes near the end of his gospel. Uh, In John chapter 20 verse 31, John writes these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by le- believing you may have life in his name. Now notice that John, John is saying Jesus could have we could have recorded hundreds of other miracles that Jesus had done but I've chosen these 7 as a way of showing you that Jesus is the Messiah and that as the Messiah he has Taken on the cross as the way of salvation. And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So those are the things that we need to understand. Having life to the full by believing in Jesus. Now what this sign might seem to us to be is a a little peculiar as a starting sign. If I were... If I were in charge of someone's campaign to become the president of the United States, I doubt that I would would take him to a little town like Cana of Galilee. Or maybe Falmouth, Michigan. (laughs) You you would want to have this first exposure in, in some large venue, in some impressive state, in which people would see him and they'd say, oh, there, there he is, that's the man or the woman. The campaign would be launched in, in a much different way than what, what seems to be happening here. It looks like Jesus is sort of forced by his mother to do something that he's not ready to do. And this backwater town of the Cana of Galilee would have been No good choice whatsoever. We might think that Jesus would do something big. Calm a storm. Heal a leper. Raise some dead person. That would be a good sign. Something that people would be attracted to. So why? Why this? Why now? A wedding party. It seemed to be fizzling because... Somebody forgot to order enough wine. Well, the simplest answer to that question of why this, why now, is because, as John puts it, it was the very first miracle that Jesus did. And thus he revealed his glory to his disciples, and they believed in him. They began to believe in him. But there has to be more to this sign than just what makes it to be traced out As to what it points to. That's what we need to look at this morning. What does this point out? By studying this miracle, we can learn not only where it points to, but what it means for us as that sign. We understand weddings in those days were really, really big events. It took months of planning and preparation to hold a a wedding in a certain town. And when the time of the wedding arrived, people would come from miles around and they would stay for days, sometimes a week or more to be at that wedding feast. And and so Jesus and his disciples were invited and Mary, his mother, was invited evidently. Maybe she was even a relative. And everybody was at Cana of Galilee. And the wedding feast was going along just fine until horror of all horrors the wine ran out. Someone someone forgot or someone misestimated or there wasn't not enough money to buy more wine. And of course there was no 7-Eleven store or no no place to go quickly to find more to drink. It was it was the end. And if it's the end, well then that would be the end of the wedding ceremony. The party was over. And the wedding would be remembered forever, not for good reasons, but for the fact that it was a disaster. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, realizing the problem, comes to Jesus and simply says to him, they have no wine. Now, the question of what Mary knew about Jesus is something that we ponder over. What did Mary understand about Jesus? There are some who say that well, Jesus had already done many miracles. Well, that's not so. that's not so. This was the first. But Mary had heard the angel who announced the, the birth of Jesus to her, and the Bible says she pondered all of that in her spirit, in her heart. She remembered the words of Anna and and the memory of what. The old Simeon in the temple had said to her on the day that Jesus was dedicated, those things pointed to the fact that that this was a special son. Did she understand he was the Messiah? Well, she had been told. But anyway, she comes to Jesus and she says, we've had a problem. Implying you have to fix it. Now, Jesus' response is what is most interesting. Jesus says to her, Woman, what is that to me? That's not my problem. Now, whether Jesus said it with irritation in his voice, I suspect maybe a little. Some translations put the word dear in front of woman. Dear woman, what is that to me? But that's not in the original Greek. So, woman, what is that to me? My hour has not yet come. What we do know is that Jesus does not mean by that statement, I don't have time for something like this. Nor does he mean, well, it's not time for me to do any miracles now. Nor does it mean, after he said that, oh, all right, mother, I'll do what you ask. That's that's not in the text. It's not there. What he says is, my hour has not come which seems to be a bit disjointed at first. We don't really understand what he means by that, except we realize that in John's Gospel, that term, my hour or the hour, appears at least 16 times. It always points to the hour of Jesus' suffering and death, the hour of his passion, the hour of his deliverance for us. So what was Jesus thinking then as he spoke to his mother in this way? What was on his mind? That's what we have to understand. Here's an explanation that has made a great deal of sense to me, and I want you to follow with me before you make a judgment on it. When people go to weddings as guests, as people who are invited to come, they often are thinking about something other than the wedding that's taking place in front here. Their minds are, are wandering off to other places. If they're already married, they're thinking about their own wedding. What was that day like? What happened at their ceremony? And if they're not married, then they're thinking ahead to, what would my wedding be like? I want this to happen. I want that. Oh, I would never do that at my wedding. I've often thought as I'm doing weddings that um, there isn't anybody who's listening to what I'm saying. Their minds are, are not even the bride or groom. <laughs> but the fact is that's, that's the way weddings are. And you often hear people at the reception afterwards saying, well, I've decided at my wedding Or, do you remember what happened at our wedding? And that's the talk. It's natural. An important day like that, memories come to the forefront. So think of it this way. Here is Jesus standing at this wedding. And his mother comes up to him and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus' mind is focused on something else, a different time and a place, which causes him to say, woman, what is that to me? My hour has not yet come. Several commentaries have suggested that at this point in the story, Jesus is actually thinking about his own wedding, a wedding feast that is yet to come. Now, I know at first thought, we would say, well, when did, when did Jesus ever get married? He never was married. But one of the most dominant features of the Old and New Testament alike is a picture that shows of a relationship that is far more intimate. Far more intimate than a, a king who rules over his, his people. Or of a shepherd who shepherds his sheep. Or even of a, of a father who, who loves his children and his family. The Bible over and over again gives us the indication that what the relationship that God desires with his people is of a husband to a wife. A marriage relationship. Let me show you a few of those texts very quickly. First of all, from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The story of Hosea is a story in which God tells Hosea the prophet to go down to the, down to the marketplace where his wife is being sold as a slave and, and to buy her back that even though she's been unfaithful in every way, that he wants her Isaiah, or Hosea to purchase his wife back and take her home again and say to her, now we will be married. We will be one. And the picture, of course, is of God and his people Israel. God saying, I want to be married to you. I want to have a love relationship with you. And I want you to be faithful to me. That's the way life should work. But the love and marriage talk is not just Old Testament language. Jesus personally identifies himself as the bridegroom in the picture in Matthew chapter 9. One day you remember when Jesus is is approached by the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees and they come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples fast like we do and like the Pharisees do? And then Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is here with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. There's going to be a point in time where I'm going to be taken away. I'm going to ascend to my Father in heaven, and then my my groom, my bride will, will fast and pray. We will be waiting for Jesus' return as the bridegroom. So Jesus identifies himself as that bridegroom who will someday come again. Now there are several parables that talk about a special wedding feast to which people are invited, and these wedding feasts, of course, are, are a really big deal. But the one I like best is the one that's found in the very last uh, book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, remember that this is John who is writing both the gospel, And the book of Revelation. So these ideas, the first wedding feast at Cana, the first miracle, and this statement at the very end of chapter 19, where John writes, "...let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the words of God. Now, with that background, don't you think it's possible, at least, that Jesus might be pondering this event, Revelation 19 event, that the purpose of his coming to earth was focused on that goal. Not just so that he would save some people from eternal damnation and put them into a category of netherland areas, but that he would bring them into a relationship with himself that would be as beautiful as we can imagine. Thinking about the feast, a feast that will blow your mind because of its goodness and its goodness and greatness. A feast that the world has never seen. Isaiah 25 verse 6 pictures it well. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. This is the wedding supper to which you and I are invited, not just as guests, but as the bride of Christ. But that still doesn't answer the question, why does Jesus respond to Mary as he does? Why does he sound somewhat stressed when he says, what is that to me? If he's thinking about his own wedding, wouldn't that be a good thing? Something to look forward to, to say, "Eh, the day is coming. The hour is coming. But here's what we need to understand about Jesus' attitude. Jesus is not only thinking about the wedding feast of Revelation 19, But he's thinking about what that is going to cost him. What will it cost him to take us as his bride? Here's why we know why that's so. When Mary comes to Jesus and tells him about the problem with the wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. And when John uses that word hour, we always understand it that this is the hour of his suffering, the hour of his intense passion and death, and that hour has not yet come. The first half of the book of John, 1 through 11, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. And so he would not allow himself to be arrested, he would not allow himself to be entangled so much with the Pharisees. But when you get to chapter 12, you will begin to notice that Jesus says, now my hour Is come. And he sets his face like flint, the old test the old text says, like flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that there is an exact time in which his suffering and death must take place. And we'll get to that when we come to Easter at Good Friday. So when Mary comes and says they have no more wine, and Jesus says, My hour is not yet come, Jesus is thinking about his wedding wine. And what it's going to cost. It's going to cost him his life. It's going to cost him tremendous suffering. He will have to drink not the cup of gladness, but the cup of bitterness. The cup that will make his, him stagger, as the Old Testament says. The cup by which he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And we can further prove that this is what was on Jesus' mind, that this had that aspect, because Jesus points to several water jars, and each of those six stone jars were made of stone, which is different from the utility jars which would carry water for everyday use. The stone jars were used for ceremonial purposes only, for the washing of people's hands and heads and feet so that they could enter into the presence of God. These were the stones for purification, we're told. And so Jesus says, you fill those six stone jars with water to the brim, and then, of course, that's changed to wine. He changes the water of purification into the wine of gladness. It all fits together, you see. What Jesus is doing here is pointing to a feast that will cost him dearly and yet will be for us a feast of eternal life. So what was Jesus thinking about? Well, he had to be thinking of tremendous cost. As one writer put it, here is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, already sipping from the bitter cup that he was going to have to drink to the dregs on the day he purchased his bride. But notice the wine is far better than any wine that has ever been tasted before at any wedding. And the master of ceremonies realizes that this is unusual. And he says, this has never been the case. We've never had such good wine at the end of a wedding. And more than that, there's so much, 120 to 180 gallons of it, unending, as it were. It points to a day of rejoicing that is made possible for us because Jesus has entered into our world and taken on himself our brokenness and became our salvation. Now that points to very, three very quick summary statements, three implications that I want to share with you. First implication is this. This is what Jesus' ministry is all about. Everything that Jesus does Points to this wedding feast. And so it's the beginning and the end of everything that he has in planned for us. Even from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is so conscious of this reason for his coming and the timing that has to happen in exactly the right space and time. He's conscious of the hour of his suffering. And he already knew what he was facing, even as he began his journey to the cross. Implication number two, but he stayed the course. And it always reveals the fact that Jesus was aiming at this great feast. It's intended to stimulate us and to delight us as well. <clears throat> you see, Christianity is not theoretical. Christianity is not just a philosophy that you, that you understand and you, you come to believe and you can take notes and, and regurgitate on a test. Christianity is not something that is, that is a, um, a, a step into the all soul of the universe where you kind of give up your body and you give up your mind and you give up your taste buds. No. No. What Jesus is pointing to is a reality that you can taste, that you can smell, that you can touch with your hands. The communion celebration is is a reminder of that, that this is a a tactile kind of thing that we should be reminded of. There is a wedding feast that is coming, and not just for the first day of salvation, but for eternity, the Bible says, the best of everything for us. And now that means, of course, for us that we ought to keep tasting. We ought to keep sipping, as it were, from from the goodness of God's grace so that we already know that there is yet more to come. And finally, it's a feast that Jesus himself longs to experience with us. This is the goal of Jesus' life. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, notice that, the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was before him. Oh, he longed for the feast, you see. And even though, even though he had disciples who were so slow of heart to learn, and even though he knows us and knows how sometimes we fail to understand anything of what the grace of God gives us, there's still the joy that someday we're going to be perfected, we're going to be washed, we're going to be given the robes of salvation, and we're going to enter into a real feast. Make no mistake about it, a real feast of celebration, which will last for all of eternity. That's what motivates Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So I hope you see this miracle as a first sign of something that is pointing forward to something really, really good. The beginning of eternity. It points past Jesus' death, points past 2023, and points to the day of his return. One of my favorite preachers put it this way. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Do you have that joy in your spirit? Do you know that this is real for you? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Help us to trust that what you say to us is real, is true. That what you have been promising to us throughout the generations is a gift of your grace which we can celebrate, that we can look forward to with strong anticipation. And on that great day, when you call us to that wedding feast, we will join with all the saints in glory, and we will celebrate saying, how can that be? That you have loved us so much. Teach us, Lord, through your spirit. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We'll stand together to sing, and can it be. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. We have just sung about approaching the throne of God with boldness and I think sometimes we miss out on that the ability to be bold as we stand before, before God God told Aaron and his sons that when they left the worship service he was supposed to pronounce upon them this benediction and as I have been given that privilege of being able to represent God before you this morning in these words. Would you lift up your heads? Don't bow your head. You are God's chosen people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to smile upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of His face on you and give you His peace. And God's people receive sayings. Amen.